All right, y'all doing well? Super Bowl Sunday. Woo! That's right. Be more awesome if we cared about either one of the teams, right? Could care less, but, uh, but I'm still going to watch it. Um, and here's the sad thing: after today, we got seven months of waiting to get to see any football. So, if you're like me and you like football, that's sad. If you hate football, you're finally overjoyed. So, anyway, it has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about. So, <clears throat> we certainly need to pray. We're going through the Book of Matthew, and um, today we have come into the sermon or the text that approaches or helps us understand the biblical foundations for marriage and what God, specifically through the person of Jesus, has to say about marriage. So um, I'm going to pray, and as, as you can tell, this is a, a very serious subject, not, not something to be taken lightly at all. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into Matthew 19. So let's pray. Father, we pray right now for a special moving of your spirit as we come to your text. The subject of marriage is is a very important one. It, It touches almost every single one of us, and sometimes in a way that can be pretty pretty deep, possibly painful. And so as we come in to this text, there's so many things that we need. God, I, I, need, um, I need a special measure of grace by the Spirit that I can speak with love and care and pastoral um, concern and wisdom and precision. I need for the Holy Spirit to come and do a work in my own heart that would transform me into be a husband that loves my wife the way that Christ loves the church. But I'm not the only one in need of that. Every single one of us here whether we're husbands or wives or future husbands and wives, needs the same thing, that you would come and do a supernatural work. And so we pray, God, that as we look into your word, that Holy Spirit, you would reside in this room um, doing your work in our own hearts this morning. I pray that as we hear and see things that perhaps um, might be new to us or are review but just so difficult, that you would... Give us a, a deep understanding from your scriptures and from the Holy Spirit that these are things that can happen in our life because you reside in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to cough. Just, I'm sorry. <coughs> it's going to happen. I, I, I got sick on Wednesday, and it's just been, it's been a pretty nasty battle from Wednesday to today. So just to gross you out before we get started. Um, so here's the thing. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 19. And basically, we've been going through the book of the Bible, I'm sorry, this whole book of the Bible, Matthew, for about two years now. And so, when we got to chapter 18, the, 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 the sections of the scripture, as we're looking at it, for example, um, Matthew chapter 5, verses chapter 7, is the Sermon on the Mountain. So we can see natural little sections that happen inside this 28-chapter book. And so, that's no different as we are right now. We have come down in, in Matthew chapter 18, which was a chapter ago, Matthew chapter 18, all the way through 21. There's, a, there's kind of a, a subtitle that we've been working with, and you can see it right here behind me called Kingdom Community. And what that means is from these three chapters or so, um, Jesus has been doing some teaching 
trying to help us see inside the kingdom community, for those that are going to be a part of the community of God inside this kingdom, there are certain things um, and certain ways that we should live and ways that we should interact with one another. There's, there's things you need to know if you're going to be a part of this, if you're going to be a believer in Christ, basically. And so in 18, we saw how we call each other out on sin. Towards the end of 18, we saw what it means to truly forgive one another. And in that same vein, Jesus is going to, in this particular um, chapter, 19, talk about inside the kingdom community, what does marriage look like? Um, and so he's going to continue to do that as we keep going. But right now, <clears throat> today, and next week, we're not going to do all 12 verses. Um, we're going to look at what does marriage look like in the kingdom community? What are some of the things that Jesus wants us to know? And just as a, uh, I think a helpful understanding, um, I'm not just going to just kind of say, here's some things in the text, this is what I think. This is what I think it means. Um, I, want to, I want you to know that with such a topic as marriage, as, as huge as it is, this is actually the position of the elders of Remedy Church. There's, there's another elder, his name's Jack. He's a campus minister at Winthrop. He's not here right now. And so what you're going to hear is not just a teaching on marriage. You're actually going to hear Remedy Church's position from the elders on what we think marriage is this week and next week as well. So I think that's helpful to know. Is I wonder if this is what they all think. This is, this is the position of Remedy Church uh, on, the, on marriage. And so marriage. Now, this is a, uh, a very sensitive topic. Um, one that I, I believe, and it's just obvious, must be approached with wisdom, care, love, and precision, and a deep desire for, as we talk about it, for the Holy Spirit to do a work in all of our hearts, starting with me, since I'm the one that's going to be talking the most. It, it certainly makes sense that the Holy Spirit would um, make me wise and sensitive and loving and caring to people as we talk about marriage, because um, in today's society, in American culture, uh, Christian or not, of marriages end in divorce. More than likely, every single person in this room has felt the sting of a divorce or know someone very close to them, whether it's their father or their mother or grandparents or sister or brother that have been divorced. And so it's it's completely unwise for me to, in some kind of um, insensitive way, lay out what I think in, in a way that's not helpful and wise and caring and loving. And so while I want to uphold truth, what I think Jesus says, I certainly want to do it in a way that doesn't cowtail, but, but still is loving and kind and, and upholds what, what I think the scriptures are teaching here today. So these, these are my goals today um, as we're looking at it. And I knew two years ago, that's how long we've been in Matthew. Whenever we began Matthew, we've had some commercials. If this is like your first week, you're like, you've been in Matthew for t- Matthew, Matthew. We've taken little breaks where we've done other stuff. Just so, so come back. Um, so anyway, um, as I started Matthew two years ago, I knew, I knew Matthew 19 was in, in Matthew. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, you read through it, you know it's there. Oh, no, Matthew, especially verse 9, the exception clause. What do I do about divorce and remarriage? And I, I've been, in some senses, approaching the entire book of Matthew with a little bit of trepidation because of the seriousness of which God looks at marriage and the seriousness that someone has to speak towards it. And so um, I'm not coming up here at all just kind of lackadaisically throwing out what I think and we're keep moving on. I've been actually looking forward to these two sermons for the entire time. Um, coming into this. And I've been praying like crazy for two years that God would do something with these. And so as we're going into this week and next week, where this week I'm going to lay biblical foundations for marriage and I'm done. That's all we're going to do. Verses one through six, biblical foundations for marriage. Jesus is going to do that for us. And then next week we're going to look at um, the the stickier issues that are brought up in verses seven through 12. All we're going to do is the biblical foundations. But as we go into this, I think that um, 
it's helpful for us to, to put our minds um, in kind of one little place and say, there's one of two directions that every single one in this room can go when it comes to te- teaching on marriage. There's two camps that every single one of us are going to um, go to, and I don't think there's any other place. If your marriage is rock solid, I mean, it's a strong, strong, Christ-centered, gospel-honoring, biblical marriage, there's still one of two places you can go, okay? And I'm going to illustrate it by, funny enough, um, two traffic violations that I encountered this week. Um, I did not do either one of these traffic violations. I just, they happened to happen to me this week, and I thought, that works perfect. So these are the two things that I saw um, this week that were traffic violations. Um, The first one was, I saw a cop, I mean, just blatantly run a red light this week, just no lights, no nothing, no reason to, just ran the red light this week. And I, I deeply desired to pull him over and do a citizen's arrest and write him a ticket out for the red light. But what did I do? Nothing. I just wanted to do it, and I ran the other way, or I went the other way, and, and didn't do anything. I just kept on going. And I think that for some of us, this, this is my first illustration, I think for some of us, as we hear this sermon today, that is probably where some of you might do. You might just hear this information, maybe even agree with it, and approach this, same with this, this sermon the same way. You have seen the wrong happen in your house. You are maybe the perpetuator of the wrong happening. You are either neglecting your spouse and all the things that God's called you to do, or you're the one being neglected in your house. And what could happen, there's one of two camps, you're going to be just like I was. You're going to know that it's there, wish that you would do something, but you're just going to, um, because of the apathy that's built up, go the other direction. Now, it could be because there's been a long, hard road to bring you to this place. And I'm not trying to minimize that. And I w- I'm going to address that later on in the sermon. But I, I think that if you just frankly say, I just don't have the strength to do this. I'm just going to hear this, and I'm just going to do nothing. That, um, you're just like I did. You're just going to run the other way. That's the one place you can go. Apathetically doing nothing. Continuing, perpetuating what's going on. Even if you're a strong marriage, you can just say, now that my marriage is strong, I've arrived, I can apathetically just let it cruise. Never can that happen in Christian marriages. Never. There's a second camp we can go into, and this is, this is the second way, and this is, again, a traffic violation. This is a perfect. I was driving in front of Krispy Kreme, complete coincidence. I just happened to happen in front. I wasn't at Krispy Kreme, although I wish I was. And in front of me, I was, I was, I was in the, the lanes um, on the right side, I was in the lane, that doesn't make sense, but it were, anyway, uh, I was driving down the lanes, and I was the front lane, front cars, and all, all the ones behind me, and right in front of me, a four-car pileup, and I mean horribly, desperately serious pileup happens right in front of me, um, and when it happened, all four cars, air black bags deployed, um, at least two of those cars were completely totaled. I mean, it happened right in front of me, and I was, all the cars, I was the front person, saw the whole thing happen, and so um, what did I do? Did I do the same thing that, the co- that I did with the cop? Just be like, oh, forget that and go in the other direction? Or, no, I mean, and I'm not trying to brag here. I pulled into the middle, and as I pulled into the middle, I'm opening my door, grabbing my phone, running down, checking every single person. I'm on the phone with 911. There's an accident, asking people if they're okay. I'm not trying to brag here. I mean, I don't think that I'm doing something that anybody else wouldn't have done if it happened right in front of their face. If I were bragging, I would have, like, said I pulled over the cop. That would have been a whole lot more epic thing to brag about. So I'm not trying to brag here. I'm actually saying I think this is something that 
every single one of us to do. Um, but I think that that same illustration is the way that we can approach this sermon today and what we're going to hear. God, is in, in his infinite grace, as we hear these things, could begin to start causing your heart to stir to really make some real changes in your marriage. Or you just realize you become apathetic and you think everything's fine. And he's granting you this amazing reality that you're getting to see that um, I'm the first car here. I see this happening, and I'm not just going to sit back apathetically. Instead, today is going to be the first day of either the long road of making restoration in my marriage, or it's going to be today's the day where I realize I've been cruise controlling this this marriage, even though it's good. That's not going to happen anymore. I'm going to start doing the absolute hard work. I I praise God that he's given to me this, and I'm going to absolutely do it. Now, I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any doubt that in last service and this service that there's got to be some marriages that are on life support. There's got to be some marriages that have had the four-car pileup and somebody needs to come in and do some trauma, some trauma attention. And I think that that's happened. And I'm going to say, I'm begging you to whenever I'm presenting these two roads, not to go the first road, but go the second. Ask the Spirit, even right now while I'm talking, even if you're not married, Ask the Spirit right now that when you get married, or even now that you will prepare your heart, that you will always be walking down that second path. That when there are things going on in your marriage that are just so difficult that you don't retreat back to apathy, whether you're the one being offended or you're the one doing the offense. We have two paths. We can just resort to apathy, or we can vigilantly seek after Christ and ask Him for His help. And here's the good, good news. If it just seems too difficult, too difficult to, to make that change. If you're a believer, you have God in you. God is in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. Nothing is too difficult through God. And so I'm, I'm begging you to not be apathetic towards this. And so here's what I've been praying. I'm praying that God is going to grant over these next two weeks that he would grant the marriages of Remedy Church to be made of Iron velvet. Iron velvet meaning tough and tender. Tough like iron to withstand the attacks of the evil one. And tender like velvet where we are tender hearted towards our spouses. And that I'm praying that the next two weeks that God will begin for some of our marriages. Start restoring the long hard path towards God. Back towards God. And that we can see what can happen. And I don't want you to miss this. Here's, here's why. Um, restored strong marriages are not the end goal here. The glory of God is the end goal. The glory of God is the end goal. If we just have strong marriages, that's good, but that's not the end in of itself. The glory of God is because marriages, a man and a woman being brought together um, in, in marriage is just an illustration or a picture of something greater. The something greater puts on display even greater for us the glory of God. The husband is just an illustration or a picture of the greater, which is Jesus. The wife is just an illustration or a picture of the something greater, which is the church. And so the something greater, the glory of God is at stake here, where husbands and wives are reflecting Christ and his church, namely that Christ loved his church so much that he willingly gave his life for her and died for her for all the sin that she committed against him so that she could be recognized reconciled back to him so we as husbands and wives as we work on our marriages and try to restore our marriages and try to make our 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 relationships picture christ in the church where he 
always forgives. He always brings her back. When people see that, they say, how is it that you can do that? We say, my marriage is not an end in of itself. The end is the glory of God, and we are a picture of something greater. And you can be a part of the church, and you can be forgiven for your sin, recognize what Christ has done, and you can be restored back to Christ. And so that's the end goal in our marriages. It's not just healthy, happy marriages so that we can live in a house together and not have fights. I mean, certainly we want that. But that's not the end goal. It's the glory of God. And putting on display to this world the gospel and the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. We are his bride. And that's, that's what marriages are supposed to portray out to this world. So that's why this is so important. Now, um, as we're going into Matthew 19, I want, you to, I want you to notice something. This is not an accident whatsoever. As writers made, wrote their books, they did it with intentionality. And so um, I don't want you to forget, although I know you've been trying all week to forget the 75-minute sermon from last week. I don't want you to forget that sermon. I'm sorry about that. I don't even know what happened. Um, I was just excited, I guess. I don't want you to forget that um, the, the, the talk or the teaching from Jesus on divorce, as Matthew thought as I'm laying this out, as he gives that to us, it comes on the heels of an entire teaching on forgiveness. That's not an accident. Here's my example. Um, in the Old Testament, it's not, written, it's not put together the way it actually was. In, in the Hebrew Old Testament, as you're reading through, there's Proverbs, and then after the book of Proverbs, there's Ruth. That's not the way it is in our Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible it is. Because as you're reading through, all of us, and especially you women, you're reading through Proverbs, you get to Proverbs 31, and you know what's there. That woman, that, that woman, she's so awesome. What's wrong with her? The industrious woman that I'm so like, ah, stop talking about her so much. She's so awesome, and I just feel so defeated every time I see. She just buys everything and sells everything and has so much success. And you're like, well, happy for her. Anyway, so anyway, like that's what I would imagine. I'm not a girl, and so I'm not having issues here. I just think that, <laughs> that you see that, and you're like, man, who is this woman? It's no accident that as you're reading through Proverbs, the writers of the Old Testament want you to see that and say, oh, you want a biblical example? Next is the book of Ruth. Here's Ruth, and you can see a real-life example of a Proverbs 31 woman in the book of Ruth and see how that really looks in real life. Ruth's got issues, there's no question. But this is what we're talking about. And that's the same kind of thing here. Matthew, as he's writing, um, all you women are like, Proverbs 31, Ruth, I'm writing that down. So anyway, um, my point is, there's, that's not a diff- there's, there's no difference here. I, don't forget that Jesus just told Peter, if someone sins against you, you forgive them 70 times 7. As a matter of fact, the way you picture it is, as many times as God will continually forgive you in the person and work of Christ and what he's done on the cross, that's the same kind of forgiveness that you are expected to extend to your spouse. That's on the heels as we're going into marriage. That's not a mistake. That's not happenstance or coincidence. It's absolutely intentional. And we don't need to miss that as we're going in here. Um, So, starting at verse 1, what we're going to see here is um, Jesus is going to have a teaching on divorce. Now, last week I said this was just kind of a one-on-one conversation with Jesus and Peter. Matthew, the writer here, is going to help us see that Jesus is going into more of a public teaching time. So this is a, a, a huge public teaching in verse 19. I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And there, here it is, large crowds followed him. And watch this. And he healed them. That's not happenstance. Before he starts talking about marriage, where in some of our, let's just be honest, a miracle needs to happen in our marriage. The miraculous has just happened, just as a, as a reminder. I'm doing miracles and healing the physical bodies of people. Certainly the Spirit can come do 
his work in your life. I mean, the disciples in verse 9 are going to say, well, this is the case. How is this going to happen? No one can do this. I just healed people. I just fed 5,000 people. I just walked on water and said that I'm God. Certainly, the teaching that I'm putting you forward in front of you where I say, this is what marriages are supposed to look like. The miraculous has to happen here by the power of the Spirit and can. So here we have um, that he healed people. Now, we need to understand the context here of why Jesus is going to do this teaching. There are some people named the Pharisees. Um, they're not fans of Jesus at all. They, they really don't like Christ at all. And so they're coming to Jesus. Um, and so the, the occasion by which Jesus is going to do this teaching on marriage is prompted by the Pharisees coming with a question. The question that they're going to ask um, is cunning. They, they don't like Jesus and they have an intent. They have a... a, a a purpose by asking this question. It's right there in the text. It said, when the Pharisees came to him, they tested him. This tested him eh, doesn't carry all the weight, doesn't carry all the weight of the word. Let's, let's get a better, better understanding. This word test can also be translated as tempt, okay? Now, Matthew has already used this word previously. You don't need to flip, but in Matthew 4, 3, he calls, whenever, if you recall, there's a time where Jesus, right before he begins his public ministry, it says that the devil, literally the devil, but he actually just calls him the tempter. The tempter comes and tries to tempt Jesus not to fulfill everything that has. He, he uses the word tempter in the noun form. Matthew uses that same word right here and says the Pharisees come by testing or tempting. And so there's, a, there's an equation of some tense of the Pharisees and their horribly wicked motives just like the devil had in trying to cause Jesus to stumble. And so you might ask, Am I, are you, Fudd, calling the Pharisees the devil? Well, it doesn't really matter if I do. Jesus calls them the devil anyway in John eight forty four and following. So maybe I am calling them the, the, the devil. Um, but the point is, is that Jesus, as he's being asked this question by the Pharisees, is being asked under pretense. It's not Hey, you know what? We just thought of a question, Jesus. We really, really, really have a deep question we'd like to ask. Instead, it's under pretense. We have a motive here where we want to catch you to say something wrong. And if that happens, then we can take you and we can just kill you. That's what we want. I mean, D.A. Carson is looking at this. He says, um, this is just a John the Baptist reenactment. Just like the Pharisees got John the Baptist beheaded eventually, they want to do the same thing to Jesus. They want to lop off his head and say, we're done with him. And humanly speaking, humanly speaking, the Pharisees are the ones that eventually accomplish the task. They're the ones that institute that false trial the last day of Jesus and eventually put him on the cross, humanly speaking, because in the end we know that it all along was the divine plan of God to let the Pharisees do that so that he would go to the cross so that he could pay for our sins. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing how Christ is. But the Pharisees here are coming here with... Um, Wrong, terrible motives. They're, they're tempting Jesus. They're trying to ask a question in such a way that they can trap him. So as we read this question, realize um, there's some motives behind it. Now, if you remember back in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing some teaching, and he's going to talk about marriage in that particular set of verses. This is a little bit different occasion because there's this question. So in Matthew 5, he's doing some teaching on the sanctity of marriage. Here he's going to do the same thing, but it's different because it's um, couched in this cunning theological question that's being raised to the Pharisees in regard to when is divorce allowed? When's divorce allowed? So that's where, that's where we are. <coughs> so let's read the question. Verse three. 
And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and to him and tested or tempted, devil tempted him. I just want to add that for, for fun. Uh, it said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause. Now, let's, let's kind of feel the weight of what they're trying to do here. There's a text that the Pharisees were very much acquainted with the Old Testament. Um, they, they memorized books of the Bible. They memorized what's known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so they, they knew in Deuteronomy 24, the last book of the Pentateuch, that there's a particular section in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, where um, it says, if these two people are married and this husband gives her a certificate of divorce and she gets married to the brother and he gives her a certificate of divorce and then now she's trying to figure out who do I want to get married to, it says she can't get married back to the first guy. That's an abomination. Now, in the Deuteronomic law, you'll notice that it's just kind of saying, if this happens, if this happens. It's not making actual pronouncements on the morality of issuing certificates of divorce. It's not making any pronouncements on the morality of or what God thinks about divorce. It's just saying, we know that this is happening now. And if this happens and if this happens, it can't happen. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's not saying that divorce is wrong or not wrong. But what's happened is from Deuteronomy 24... Um, It's kind of traveled and perpetuated through sinful human history where they said, oh, Deuteronomy 24, clearly God must be okay with divorce. And so as we get to here, they're coming and they're saying, and there's been lots of scribal teachings that have made provisions for divorce. And so they're coming and they're saying, is there any cause at all where divorce is okay? Now let me give you some explanation. There were some rabbis, a rabbi Shammai, he was conservative and he basically would say, um, divorce, since I'm conservative, can only kind of happen really in one little instance, and it's got to be really terrible. Other than that, no. And then there's Rabbi Hillel, and he, Hillel, you got to get in there. He's, he's more of the liberal kind, and he was just, I mean, he was wicked. I mean, just wicked. He's like, yes, you can divorce. If, um, if she burns or spoils your dinner, you can chunk her out. If you find out before y'all got married that she was unfaithful to you before marriage, you can, you can divorce her. If, this is the worst one I saw this week, if um, you think that there is another woman that is more fair, basically better looking than she is, send her on her way. Give her a certificate of divorce and go marry the other one that's better looking. Wretchedly, wicked, sinful, horrible view of women that was being upheld. And then there was this, there's this one little um, kind of off society called the Qumran Society. Or, and they said divorce is never allowed. Divorce is never allowed. But no one really gave them a whole lot of weight, if you will. And so they come and they say, is it lawful for, for one to divorce his wife for any cause? And so Jesus knew all these little historical things. He knew what's going on. And so this is what Jesus does. And don't miss, I mean, I know he's Jesus and it's hard for us not to be like, yeah, he's God, of course. Um, don't miss how crazy smart Jesus is. He knows they're cunning. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they want. He certainly he can say, well, I mean, I guess, like, according to your law, If we're just going to be right up to the law, there is some occasions where a divorce can happen. And that's all they're waiting for. That's all they're waiting for. So instead of doing that, he's not going to do that. All he's going to do is he's going to say, okay, let me answer your question. I'm going to take you back to Genesis 1 and chapter 2. And I'm just going to build for you a biblical foundation of marriage according to God. There's your answer. That's it. Crazy smart. Crazy smart. So here's, let's read it so we can can get the full weight of it. And we're not going to get into 
the Matthean, or the, the book of Matthew has this little exception clause when divorce is okay. I'm not going to get into that. That's going to be next week. Um, I just want to concentrate on biblical foundations of marriage, and let's put that in, and just, just let that be something that we think about this week. So they ask the question, is it, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice the first two words of four. He answered, how gracious is Jesus, right? He knows everything that's going on, and he's still going to answer. I mean, honestly, you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'd fly off the handle. But he answers. This is what he says. It gives him a little, little bit of snark, though. Look what he says. Have you not read? I mean, he's saying that to the Pharisees who memorize Scripture. Uh, aren't you the Bible guy? Aren't you supposed to know? It's kind of you know, a little, little sting there. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Quoting Genesis 127. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2.24. So that they are, and then doing a little bit of um, application, or if you will, explaining what those things mean. So they are no longer two, the man and husband and wife are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Can we get a divorce for any cause? Well, you know, don't you know that God created male and female? And when he put them together, he said that, they should leave their father and mother, hold fast to one another, become one flesh. And so since they're one flesh, what God's joined together, let not man separate. And as far as Jesus is concerned, he has answered the question. He's done. Answer, asked, answered, done. And he's ready to, that, I don't need to give you any more. Like I've given the answer. I know that the rest of Matthew gives more stipulations and more stuff. But as far as Jesus is concerned, can divorce happen? Here's your answer. Biblical foundation of marriage. Ask and answered. And I'm done. So I want us to not let that kind of pass us by, but realize as we get into those dicey, more interesting texts next week, that Jesus gives his answer right here. There's a full answer in 4 through 6, and we don't need any more. I know that because of the Pharisees who have wicked motives want to have nuance, then they can get, they can, we can get more out of it. But that's not, Jesus had asked and answered in 4 through 6. So if you want to know the answer to this question, Four through six is completely sufficient to do. So let's look at four through six. And what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to, what Jesus does, give us the biblical foundations for marriage. There's three of them that I think Jesus gives to us here. The first one is in verse four. And he says, and he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Quoting Genesis 1.27. So the first thing that Jesus does, and we're, I'm going to read Genesis 1.27. The first thing that Jesus upholds in a biblical foundation or a biblical view of marriage is this. The image of God is in the husband and the wife. Let me read Genesis 127 to you. So God, this is in the creation account, the very first days. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And here it is. Male and female, he created them. Meaning men and women are both made equally in the image of God. The point that he's trying to make is that men and women in regard to dignity, value, and worth, are absolutely equal in the eyes of God. There's no difference whatsoever. This is only for man and woman. This is not for animals. Your dog doesn't go to heaven. He doesn't have a soul. And we all know cats are evil. But anyway, um, the point that he's trying to make here is that the image of God has been put in husbands and wives. And so therefore, in regard to dignity, value, and worth, I'm not talking about roles. I'm going to in a second. But in regard to dignity, value, and worth, both men and women equally have image-bearer status. And Jesus is wanting them to see that. 
the first thing that you're asking about because you're wickedly sending out certificate of divorces, men, like it's just, you know, no big deal at all. Men and women are made equal in the image of God. Who do you think you are? Is what he's trying to dig at there. And so let me, let me just take one little detour and Normally, I don't do this, but, you know, I've got the mic, and we're going to do it. So the next verse, by the way, and I don't want you to miss this. This does not have to do with marriage, but this is one of, this, I think this is really important. The next verse is not something that we should just kind of read through and not worry about it. Um, the very first thing that man and woman is commanded to do, by the way, is be fruitful and multiply. Did you know that? It's not don't lie. It's not blah, blah, blah. The first thing that we are, as husband and wife, commanded to do is to be fruitful and multiply. And so I don't want you, and I know that there's... Um, there's times where people really believe that, but, but there's also some who have a mindset where they think of children as a curse or a problem or a setback or an added expense. And I just don't think if you think about children that way, that's the right way to think about children. The Bible does never speak of those uh, children in that way. It speaks of them as children are a blessing to the Lord. That's why when it looks at marriages who have children, it says that they are blessed, Psalm 127.5. So we shouldn't ever think of children as setbacks or um, an added expense that I'm not sure I'm ready for. Children are blessings, period. Um, and Remedy Church seems to be believing this this year. Seems like we fully embrace that, and there's been babies everywhere. And so, amen, let's keep embracing it. So back to the actual point. Um, but I, just, I think that's important. I really think that's important. Back to the actual point here. Um, which is the verse above, Genesis one twenty-seven. There's some things that I think that Jesus wants us to see when he says, male and female, he created them, both in the image of God, and they are completely equal in dignity, value, and worth. We're not talking about roles. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Now, here's the thing. The first thing that Jesus wants us to see, this is not going to be on the screen, is that Jesus is saying that marriage is between male and female. It's right there in the text. Have you not read from the beginning? He made them male and female. I don't think that this is really difficult, and there's maybe some relevance here in the 21st century. I don't think that there's any relevance, maybe there is, in, in, in Remedy Church, but perhaps you know people that need to say husband is, or marriage is just between a male and a female only, just one husband or one male, just one female, and just those two genders. And that's what marriage is, and that's what it's always been from the beginning according to God. The next thing that we need to see is Jesus is pointing out the imago Dei. That's Latin for image of God. He's pointing that out in them, the imago Dei. And he wants them to see that there's something distinct about human beings compared to the rest. I mean, that's the whole point. Whenever he has Adam stand there and he just keeps parading animals in front of him. Hey, look, there's two. They're the same, but they're different. There's two. There's, and I want you to name them, like torture. There's another one. And then after he's all done, he kind of looks around and he's like, Wait a second. There's just one of me, not the same but different. Something's not right here, God. You know what I mean? Something's not right. And so that's the whole point of it. I think of just parading him over and over. So he's like, okay, I'm supposed to have somebody else here. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I think that's the whole point is that he's wanting him to see the image of God, that he is distinct in creation. Man is the crowning jewel of all creation. We are more important than anything that's, else, that's ever been created. We are not more important than Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. He gets all the glory. We're just more important than everything else. All right? Um, I think that's obvious, but needs to be said sometimes. Um, the other thing that he's trying to point out is that woman has been given to man. That's when he says, when he basically makes Adam go to sleep, and he brings her, and he brings the woman to, to Adam. And what does Adam say in the Hebrew? Woo! 
yeah! Like, something basically like that. He's really excited. He's like, that's what I'm talking about. She's different me, but we're the same. That, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And so that's basically what he's trying to say. But the point that Jesus is trying to make here is this. Just as we're equal status of Imago Dei, women have been equally given to man just as men have been equally given to women. I'm not getting into roles yet, okay? Calm down. I'm just kidding. But um, men and women have equally been given to each other. And the way that I think this has been distorted is that men think women have been given to me. And that's what he's going after here. Women have been given to me. Now this seems to be perhaps best directed at the first century where Jesus is talking. But I think there's definite 21st century applications for us. He's talking to the first century where women were literally treated like property because they were literally property. Men um, could just discard them like trash if they were done with them. You burnt my toast, you're out. I think somebody's better looking than you, you're out. Very few women were actually treasured. I mean treasured that God would give me this gift. And that's how women are supposed to be treated by husbands. A treasure that God, he who finds a wife, finds a good thing. He who will find, husbands, listen, I'm just going to give you some advice. My wife's not here. This is what I did. I'm just reading through the Proverbs, and I read that, and I'm like, hmm, that's good. And I just wrote to my wife a little text message. I sent the verse, he who finds a wife sends a good thing. I have found a good thing. I love you. Let me just say it, wives like that. That's a little secret for y'all. Do that this week. Just, you don't even have to say I told you to do it. Just be like, I came up, well, don't say you came up. Be like, it was a good idea to do. Just something like that. Something real. Anyway, back to here. Um, so what I think he's trying to point out to the husbands is this. If we can just narrow it down, which I think it does have 21st century applications, is this. Husbands, you are not more important than your wife. That's the point. You are not more important than her. You are equally important. Complementarianism, which is the idea that even though we are created completely and equal in dignity, value, and worth, we still have different roles. I mean, we can look at each other and say, okay, men and women, they're different. They're just different. There's no big mystery there. We're different. Complementarianism absolutely upholds the dignity and value and worth of women and puts them on equal footing with men, but says we also have different roles where our roles complement one another. In the Bible, it says that men are to be the servant leaders and women are to come and help. And those roles have nothing, nothing, nothing at all to say in regard to our dignity, value, and worth as made image bearers of God. That's upheld. And since that's upheld, from that, we can talk about roles. And so complementarianism never means, never, never means that women or have less dignity, value, and worth. It only means that in regard to roles, men, you're the servant leader. Servant leader. Not the tyrant, not the authoritarian, not the dictator. You're the servant leader. If you want to know what that looks like, just look at Christ. Go to where Jesus takes off the towel and washes his disciples' feet. And there was no question in the room as the Son of God is on his knees washing the disciples' feet. No one in that room said, I wonder who's the leader here. It must be Peter. No one said that. Everyone knew that it was still Jesus. You're the servant leader. You are the servant leader. Which means you will also incur greater judgment for the way you lead her. This is what Christ is trying to say. A biblical foundation is that we are absolutely both made in the image of God. And that we are her servant leader. Chandler, Matt Chandler, as he's talking about this from a sermon a while. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. But this is what he says. Um, Talking about men who don't treat their wives the way they should. 
He said, she has a soul. Do you get that? She has a soul. She is not someone given to you by God solely for the purpose of keeping your house clean, making your meals, and sharing your bed. She has a soul. And a precious soul that's been made in the image of God that is to be wooed by you. You are to draw out everything she is in Christ, draw it out of her so that she can live a life full for Jesus. That's your job, man. She has a soul. She's not just your roommate that takes care of stuff for you. You didn't get married to get a second mom. That's the point here that I think Jesus is trying to help us see, that women are to be treated as co-equal image bearers. Now, in the 21st century, there's, praise God, we've come a long way. This can certainly be reversed. Women can be the dominant and emasculate men. And again, that's not supposed to be doing, happening either. Co-equal. Both of you are supposed to look at each other as co-equal image bearers. So how does that play out in your house? Whenever you are about to speak in a way that does not uphold their image bearer status, then you don't do it. How can you? Speak to your wife or your husband in such a way if they're made in the image of God in that way. You're not supposed to. And so as we uphold that and we think about that, it certainly plays itself out in everyday life the way we speak to one another and love each other and cherish one another and treasure each other. And as Jesus says, decide when someone says, this helps us decide, I mean, completely when it comes to divorce. What's the right thing that I should be doing here as a, as a Christ follower? Next thing Jesus points out is, first is the image bearer status. The next one in verse 5 is, and he said, now he's going to quote Genesis 2.24, and we're going to jump around in that little context. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The second foundation for biblical marriage is um, one flesh of husband and wife. Jesus is wanting to lift high this idea of the one flesh union, the one flesh status between the husband and wife and wants us to understand what that means. He's doing that, answering the question of divorce. Should divorce ever happen? One flesh. You figure it out. That's basically what he's doing here. So let's, let's talk about some things that we need to know in regard to um, what Jesus is doing. I want to read you this full context in Genesis, he's quoting 2.24, but certainly he wants us to make sure that we know the rest. That's why he asked him, haven't you read? Um, kind of digging on him a little bit. So let's look at 2. If you want to flip, you can. You don't have to, but I'm in Genesis chapter 2. It's the very first book in the Bible, second chapter. And I'm, I'm going to start in verse 18, just so that we can get that idea of what's going on. And in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. When he says alone, he doesn't mean that somehow um, man was deficient in his relationship with God. Remember, before Eve came, it was Adam and God. So he's not saying that that relationship, which is in perfect harmony, because sin hasn't happened in Genesis 3, it's just, it's just not good. It's, it's, it's de- God's relationship with man is deficient. So God needs a woman to come in and sweep Adam off his feet and make him a whole man. There's no Jerry Maguire stuff like that. I mean, he has a completely perfect, awesome relationship with God that is, does not need reparation. It's, it's fine. But what he is realizing is, I'm alone. I don't have someone that compliments me like me. That's what we mean by alone. Not lonely or that God's relationship with Adam is deficient and he, Eve needs to be the savior. 
That's, that's not it at all. So for you single guys, even if, or single girls, even if you get a spouse, he or she is not your savior. Jesus is still your savior. They're just a gift by God. All right, so back over to this. So here it is. It says, <clears throat> I, I will make a helper fit for him. Go down to 21. This is what we just read between that. It's when the animals go in front of him. We already talked about that. So the Lord caused a deep sleep um, to fall upon Adam, the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed it up in a place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken with the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, woo! Something like that. He says this, at last. You can just imagine the emphatic at last there. This at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here, Jesus, this is the direct quote from Matthew 19. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And here it is. They shall become one flesh. Jesus quoting all that and is helping them see a biblical foundation to your answer is one flesh. So let's make sure we understand some things that Jesus is wanting to say here. The first thing that Jesus is wanting to say, not on the, not on the chart up here right behind me, in regard to one flesh is that marriage is for our well-being. It's for our well-being. The man was alone, not deficient in his relationship with God. He was just alone. And so a spouse coming into your life is for your well-being. I mean, college guys, aren't you tired of eating ramen noodles? Don't you just need somebody that can make some food and make you take a shower and tell you to wash your clothes? Like, we are in desperate need. We are a wreck without a woman in our life, right? I mean, a wreck. Now, obviously, we don't want just a mom coming in there and straightening us up. Um, but they also, women, and this is a great thing, women bring some emotional balance to us. Sometimes we're just so hard. We need that emotional balance that softens it out, that I think makes us into a whole man. I mean, Jesus felt. He felt things fully. And so it's good for our well-being, physically, emotionally, spiritually, to have a woman, maybe to motivate us to get a job. Um, but But finally, it's good for us to have a woman in our life, if the Lord would grant it. If you're the First Corinthians 7 gift of singleness. All right. Um, you are, are the man or woman, and I'm just really glad I'm not given that gift. Sounds like a great gift. Um, anyway, for you. <clears throat> the second thing that I want, he wants us to see in regard to one flesh, when he says that um, the two shall become one flesh. What he's trying to build in for us is this idea of permanence. One flesh means permanent. Permanence. Not ending. Not going to stop. We're going to unpack that in a second, but that's the second thing. And what the third thing that Jesus is doing, um, and this is kind of the antithesis of this idea of permanence, since Jesus is meeting with one flesh permanence, he's also now aligning himself with Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce, aligning himself against divorce. He is saying um, marriage is to be permanent institution. Therefore, I am against something that is not a permanent institution. I am against divorce. That's what he is saying when he says one flesh. D.A. Carson says this, the one flesh in every marriage between a man and woman is a reenactment of and testimony to the very structure of humanity as God created it. God concludes that the man and the woman are no longer two, but one. So it's a reenactment of the very structure of humanity as God created it whenever a man and woman comes together. And they're no longer two, but now they're one. So man and woman are to think of their bodies literally coming together, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, forever, permanent. Until we die and we're in heaven where we know we're not given in marriage. 
that, and not just that, but when this happened, we didn't do that in and of ourselves. But God did that. If we did it, certainly it sounds like it could be broken. But God did it. God did it. That gives a whole lot more weight to it. We're giving away my third point. So, um, therefore, divorce is not just an unnatural break with the way God's aligned the world to be, but it is rebellion against God. Divorce is rebellion against the way he's designed things to be. And so God hates divorce. This one flesh is not just physical, but it's much more than this. The, the ESV study Bible, as it's talking about this one flesh idea, it says, the man and woman, they have been unified in this mysterious way that belongs to no other human relationship. Not like a brother and sister or you know, a distant cousin. Don't marry your cousin. Back to what I'm saying. Having all the God-given rights, now this husband and wife has the God-given rights and responsibilities of marriage that they never had before until they got married. So we're not just talking about physical, though. We're also talking about the emotional and spiritual connection that now that we're in the same house, we might be connecting physically, and this never happened, but we're also connecting in an emotional and a spiritual and just in an amazing level that's never happened before that is not going to happen before you're married. And so when you try to make it happen before you're married, you realize just how how miserable you are trying to bring something together that God didn't bring together. When God brings it together, then everything starts working the way he intended. That's why you can't do those things before you get married, before God actually unites you. Um, Calvin, as he's looking this, um, well, let's, yeah, let me, let me tell you what Calvin says. <clears throat> Calvin, as he says this, now Christ assumes as an admitted principle that the beginning here, God joined together male and female so that, the two made an entire man. So literally, when he says, husband and wife come together, they have now made an entire man. He says, and therefore he who divorces his wife tears from him, as it were, half of himself. Now he's going to be logical. He's going to say, but nature doesn't allow any man to actually tear into pieces his own body. We all know that. But then he's going to go back to the spiritual and he says, but whoever divorces his wife tears himself in pieces because such is the force of holy marriage that the husband and wife have become one man or become one flesh. That's the force that now we're starting to see. It's demonstrating for us, Jesus has been, and Matthew and this whole text, demonstrating for us the radical nature of understanding that we are to have in regard to this one flesh union that's happened. There's a, there's a radical understanding that we're supposed to have of this, of this um, one flesh union that's happened. So the two have become one. Now, the third thing I want to make sure that we see, which I've already kind of alluded to, is that God did it. God did it. So here's the third foundation. The first is that we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we should treat each other that way. The second is that we are now one flesh. And from what Jesus is saying, one flesh is permanent and cannot be ripped apart. You don't rip apart your whole body. You nurture it. You make it grow. You take care of it. It's the argument from Ephesians 5 that Paul is making in marriage, which we don't have time to get into. The third thing that I want you to see right here in verse 6 is, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus reiterates it, and then he says, what therefore God has joined together. Notice who's joined together. You said I do on your your wedding day, and yes, you, you got together with your spouse on that day, but what happened is that God joined you together, and it says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I want to unpack that last little section there. Um, first where it says, um, what therefore God has joined together. This, these words, 
joined together. This is only something God can do. We say I do, but in the moments that we're saying I do, God is doing something where he is now, this word joined together, he's fastening us, he's yoking us, he's uniting us, he's tying together in a God knot, if you will, putting us together. And if God does that, are you saying that we are able to undo that? Man can undo that? But God has done. And so what he's saying here, first is that God is joined together. Then we have let not man separate. Now, the let is not in the, is not in the Greek. It doesn't exist. But it seems as we read the word let to kind of give us the idea that we have a little part. Man can do something. Let not. Oh, okay, let. That means I have a little bit of ability to do something. But that's not it. Um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this. It says, man must not separate. Getting a little bit closer. But in the Greek, it's just literally no man separate. What God has joined together, fastened, united, tied together. No man separate. No Man is not able. Man should not. Man cannot. No man separate. This is the emphatic nature of what Jesus is trying to help us see. um, That there is no way that man can separate because God has done it together. So you're standing in your wedding or one day you will be. And it's going to be so pretty. And it's going to be people there and the little kids and flowers. and So anyway, the pastor is going to stand there. And he's going to, at the end, he's going to look at you and say something like, As a minister of the gospel of Christ... For the glory of Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What's going on in that moment? What's happening in that moment? There's a lot of things. Number one, the pastor is not joining you together. He's a mouthpiece. He's a mouthpiece. God comes down in a supernatural, mysterious way. And in those moments, starts fastening and joining these husbands and wives together to become one flesh. Physical hasn't even happened yet, and it's already together. Spiritually, emotionally, starting to come together. And then one day, very soon will be consummated physically and you're all brought together in this one flesh, permanent bond. The minister who says these things is just the guy that signs the license and is the mouthpiece for God. He's not the one that binds you together, nor are you the ones that bind together, though you play a part. Certainly we all play a part. But God's the one in this text that actually joins together. And since he's the ones that joins together, he is the one that breaks apart. That's the principle. God puts together, God breaks apart. No man separate. You don't have the authority. God does. That's, that's kind of the gist that, so when they ask this question, Jesus just answers with helping them see who they are in the image of God, tells them that they're one flesh, and tells them, God put you together. I've answered your question. And as far as he's concerned, he's given the answer. Therefore, we can deduce what God puts together. He means to be a permanent bond. Calvin says, Jesus declares that it is not the power of the husband or the wife to dissolve the marriage. So likewise, Jesus forbids all others to conform by their authority divorces. The magistrate, or the state, or the whatever. For the magistrate abuses its power when he grants permission to the husband or the wife to divorce. This is, I think, the most important sentence. This is, my, this is my conclusion. If you don't listen to any other sentence, this is the most important sentence of the sermon. I'll read it twice. This is the most important. This is what I think is the bottom line. Therefore, every man and every woman is expected by God to maintain and observe 
the promise and the covenant of marriage that they made with their husband and that they made with or with their wife until they die. That's the expectation. I read it one more time. Therefore, every man and every woman is expected by God to maintain and observe the promise and the covenant of marriage that they have made with their husband or their wife until they die. So Jesus has given his answer. And he's done. And he doesn't need to address it anymore. It's only, if you notice in verse 7, they say to him, why then did Moses? And then Jesus is going to have to give further answer, which we're going to get into. I know it's, that part's confusing, but we need to just let this sit for a week and realize the answer's been given. What are the biblical foundations of marriage? This is it. This is the biblical foundations for marriage. So, let's just put off 7 through 12 and concentrate on 1 through 6, and let's just all kind of get real here for a second and say, where are we in regard to the biblical foundations of marriage? If you're not married yet, where are you going to make sure you're going to be? Or where are you right now? Some of you might be feeling conviction because there's just no desire to fight. I've sat across pastorally. I've sat across people that have been married for a long, much longer than me into their 50s and 60s and seen them weep towards me and say, I've tried for so long, I got no more fight in me. I got nothing. I've tried for too long. He or she has beaten me up so many times. I don't even want to be apathetic. It's like I'm almost gone. I got nothing. And so, pastorally, I want to say I understand. I'm not here to browbeat you and say, come on. I'm saying, like I said in the very beginning, We have God in us. He just did the miraculous healings right before he says this. Certainly, certainly with the Holy Spirit in us, we can just resolve this today. That's the path. It scares me to death. It's four years long. It's ten years long. I'm sitting. Certainly we can resolve. I'm going to stand. I'm going to take the first step. Trusting that the Holy Spirit can, can walk me through it. Certainly we can do that. So pastoral, I'm wanting to plead with you. Maybe your marriage has been the terrible cold winter and all that's happened is this is the first glimmer of minute of hour of the spring. The sun came up and maybe there's a bloom and you're scared. You've been apathetic for so long and you've got no more fight. And I'm just saying, if the Spirit is, con- is coming to you and convicting you, embrace that and trust Him. He loves you more than you love yourself. He can empower you to walk through this because He's God. And I want to help. We want to help. Let us. Perhaps, secondly, you're feeling some conviction because as you heard image bearer, you don't love your spouse well. You don't treat him or her in a way that reflects they're an actual image bearer. But they're they're your roommate that's supposed to do for you. You speak to them in ways that if people are around, would be astonished that's you talking. They'd be astonished. And 
I think that the Spirit's saying sternly and gently repent this moment. Repent from that. Come back to the gospel. Come back to Christ. Start living in what's been declared of you. Treat him or her as if they are an image bearer just like you. Some might be feeling the conviction or understanding the seriousness of one flesh. In other words, your marriage right now is a four-car pileup. It's a mess. It's a mess. And you know it. And it just happened. Or it's, the, the wounds are very, very fresh. And I'm asking you, you've got two paths here. You can sprint away or you can run in right here. It's our, it's our calling to God. Prayer is, God, I'm scared to death. I'm going in. I'm seeing what's damaged. And I need for you to be with me. Help me. It is a mess right now. There are casualties. There is blood. It's awful. And I want to, because I know it pleases you, to make this bring you glory and honor. Because marriage isn't about making my marriage better. Marriage is about the glory of God. And as a believer, I want to reflect out to the world Christ and his church, that our, his gospel is the only hope I have. The only hope. And perhaps the conviction of the Holy Spirit has come and you've realized your marriage is a mess. It's nothing to be ashamed of. A lot of people have marriages that are messes. We want to help. We want to talk. We want to counsel. We want to be there. God gives us churches and communities to help counsel. Friends that love Jesus that can walk through these things with us. And so, we want to help put you on that path towards restoration. A deeper walk with Jesus and a love of the gospel. The gospel is your only hope. It's my only hope. And so we're going to go into a time of worship now. We're going to sing some to Christ. If, you, if, you, if you're just like saying, I can't talk. I, I can't sing. That's fine. Sit, pray, think. I'll be in the back. If you want to just pray or talk, I'll be there. Perhaps that's uncomfortable. Just talk with the person you came with. Make sure if you can't do it now, you had that conversation in the car ride home. You need to begin processing and talking about it. We've seen the foundations for marriage. We see what God expects. And let's just let that be the conversation this week. Remedy, we deeply desire strong marriages here. Not as an end of itself, because the stronger our marriages are, the more glory Christ gets. <laughs> and conversely, the more on mission we are. The more stronger we are at mission with stronger marriages. People meet Jesus that way. And God receives glory. And there's nothing wrong with this. You have a happy and joyful marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to pray. And however the Holy Spirit's leading you right now, I just ask that you be obedient to that. Let's pray. Father, uh, what a... What a tough topic. What a tough topic. And I pray that any forcefulness that I, undue forcefulness that I might have had, forgotten, the truth of your spirit, the truth of your word would be what's remembered. I pray that the tenderness of the spirit would be felt. And for those that are hard-hearted, 
the conviction of the Spirit would be felt. I pray for us all as we think and pray and process and meditate and meet with you in these next few minutes that we're obedient to your Spirit. Praise in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.